social worker, and I've worked with sexually abused children since 1973 and have spent the last four years working with juvenile sex offenders. And what I'm going to be doing this morning is a real sort of intellectual talk about some of the behaviors and some of the feelings behind the behaviors that are common to those of us who are survivors of physical and, and sexual abuse. I'm an ACA and also a survivor of both extensive physical and sexual abuse. Now, it, I don't know if any of you have ever heard me speak before. I tend to be somewhat controlling in my presentation style. I like to think that that comes from years of Catholic education. And I tend to teach the way nuns teach, which is what I would like to be able to do, is get through the material that I have to present. And then I promise that I will uh, leave plenty of time. I bet it's because I'm standing underneath that thing. Plenty of time for questions at the end um, and discussion. So if we could do that, that would be very helpful. Let me just start out with some facts about sexual abuse and physical abuse of children in this country. An infant girl born today has a one in four chance of being sexually victimized by the time she's 18 years old. And infant boys, it used to be said that their chances of sexual victimization were one in six. But newer studies are showing, in fact, that boys are equally at risk. And, and that's been my experience. For a while, I ran a large mental health clinic in the Boston area, sex abuse treatment unit. And when we looked at our clients under eight years old, boys and girls were represented equally. By the time we got into the teen years, there were literally no boys at the clinic who were there just to be treated for victimization. Many juvenile sex offenders have victimization in their background, but there was, wasn't anybody there just presenting as a victim. And I think that's, that's not because it happens less to boys as they get older. I don't think that's the situation. I think it just becomes increasingly more difficult to talk about, more difficult to tell as boys get older. I think that's, that's the situation that, that we're dealing with. So that there's a one in four chance, I think, of a child being sexually victimized, and that's according to reported cases only. Now, that statistic covers a very wide range of crimes, all the way from exhibitionism, where there's flashing, no hands-on contact, and the child's able to get away and tell, all the way to the other end of the continuum, which would be a prolonged incest offense, involvement in child prostitution or pornography, or uh, rape. Forty percent of rape victims are under 20 years old. So that this is really at epi epidemic proportions in this country. And all of those crimes are harmful to children to some degree. They, all of them are traumatic. Children certainly should be able to, to get through their childhoods without that. Now, in terms of physical abuse and neglect, there are over a million and a half cases of, of physical abuse and neglect reported in this country each year. So that also is, is, is an epidemic. Now, I, the reason that U.S. Journal has me present at these kinds of conferences is because there is such a high correlation between four problems, that being substance abuse by a caretaker, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect. And wherever we find one of those four problems, we really need to be asking about the other three. Now, that's not to say that all families that have some trouble are going to have all of those problems. But certainly, if you have a substance abusing caretaker, it's very fertile ground for sexual abuse to begin. Or if sexual abuse has happened in the family, very often physical abuse is parallel to the sexual abuse as well. And we'll talk more about that as, as the morning go on, goes on. Now, I'd like to really define what I mean by child sexual abuse, because I think physical abuse is much more clear. But the term sexual abuse is very confusing and really misleading. And the more I do this work, I'm coming up on my 15th year now, and the more I do it, the more I become convinced that what we call child sexual abuse has really been misnamed. It's called something that is very misleading and um, really kind of troublesome. Because in working with victims and survivors, one of the most difficult things to do is to help take the sex out of sexual abuse. It's hard to help someone understand that what happened to them when they were children has nothing to do with sex as two people who are the same size, who are consenting, who are responsive and responsible to each other. How those two people will experience sex is foreign to what happened to them as children. And what happened to them as children was an abuse of power. And I think that's a more correct term. And it also makes the link very nicely to physical abuse as well. That it's an abuse of power. It's a big person picking on a little person. 
There's a number of things that we know about offenders, and one of them is that people who molest young children tend to be stuck emotionally at a very young age, generally at about two to four years old. And so they may have a very big body. They may be an adolescent or an adult, a male or a female. But in terms of how they function, particularly interpersonally, they're very, very little. Now, some offenders can be very compartmentalized and can be very good at other parts of their lives. They can make a lot of money. Uh, they can be very active in their church or their community. They can be very good at their profession. But in terms of their interpersonal relationships, in terms of intimacy, of being able to sustain an intimate relationship with the peer, they really do not have the right equipment. They are stuck way back at a very early age. And what is arousing to that offender about children is the relative powerlessness of that child. That, that inside, the offender feels very empty, very out of control, inadequate. And he or she may compensate for that with a lot of macho or competence or whatever. But in their heart of hearts, they really feel very small. So that makes kids not only their psychological buddies, their peers, emotionally, but in the child, they will always find somebody who's smaller. So no matter how inadequate or how helpless they feel, here's somebody who's always going to be smaller, always going to be more inadequate, always going to be more powerless than they are, who's not going to put the kinds of demands on them that a peer might, that it's really very safe. So that this starts out for most offenders as much more of an abuse of power than anything else. I have a colleague in the Midwest who's got a great saying, and she says, you know, if I hit you over the head with a rolling pin, you wouldn't call it cooking, would you? And just because, just because some people use their genitals to abuse their power, that doesn't make it sex. Now, the sexual gratification that the offender feels becomes important. And for those of you in the audience, for those of us who've been sexually abused, you can feel that. You get a sense of how good it makes this person feel, what a difference it makes in his or her life. Now, that sexual gratification can become very important, and it can keep a person returning to that behavior. But that's what we call a secondary gain. That's something that comes later. And the, the sex offender generally doesn't know when he or she begins this behavior how sexually gratifying it's going to be. What got him into it to begin with was the abuse of power. That's the primary motivation. It's those needs to fill up that emptiness, to make oneself feel big relative to another human being, and clearly at that person's expense. But the sexual gratification can also become very important. Now... When I use this kind of language, I find that talking about sexual abuse as being an abuse of power is very important to offenders as well, because the, the, the sexual abuse term is misleading to offenders. Now, most sex offenders that I've worked with, adult and juvenile, think of sex as something that's dirty, that's bad, that's icky, that ought to be forbidden, ought to be secretive. I do a lot of evaluations for court, and I wish I had a dollar for every offender who's told me something like, masturbation is worse than what I did. Or if I had um, had an affair, now that would have been tragic. This wasn't so bad, but having an affair would have been a really terrible thing. So they have very negative kinds of attitudes towards sexuality. And they also have a cognitive distortion that when they hear that they've abused sex, what they think is, I did something bad to something that's bad, and that's okay. What's the big deal? What's your problem? Get off my back. I did something bad to something that's bad, and that's no problem. And we have that kind of cognitive distortion culturally. We, we have that faulty thinking. It's okay to shoot a delinquent on the subway. It's okay to beat up a Nazi. It's even okay to rape a sex offender in prison. You can do something bad to something that's bad and not be accountable. You don't have to find other ways of channeling those feelings, other ways of solving those problems. Now, when we talk instead to offenders about the abuse of power, that they've abused their power, most of us as teenagers and adults like our power. We tend to like it a lot. And so what they hear instead is that they did something bad with something that is good, something that they value. And it hits home much more profoundly in terms of the damage that they've done, in terms of what has actually transpired here. 
So I think that those, those terms are really quite important. And it, it, again, relates to physical abuse as well. One of the ways that I explain the abuse of power to offenders is to talk about the process of dumping that often goes on in, in families. And that maybe there's a male, an adult male in the family, and maybe he gets into some kind of a beef at work, and he feels his boss has been unfair to him. So he comes home and he takes it out on the adult woman in the family. And what he does is he hits her because he's really frustrated. and he's, So he's going to dump his anger from work on that woman. Well, she doesn't appreciate being hit because, after all, she didn't have anything to do with what his problem is. And so she takes it out on the oldest kid. So she hits the oldest kid, who hits the next oldest kid, who hits the next kid, who hits the youngest kid, who hits the family pet, you know, the family cat who goes out and kills a mouse. I mean, it's just sort of dumping. It just got, You just dump on the next person underneath you. You don't return your feelings to their source. There's no, no sort of permission. There's no sort of system within the family to work that out. And that's what physical abuse and sexual abuse is, is about. Now, in the bioenergetics field, they talk about the physical abuse of children being very sexual. And I tend to agree with that. I, I think that that's right. The way that they look at it is that that is sexual, physical abuse of children is sexual energy that should be directed towards an adult, should be discharged in healthy sex with an adult, and that that doesn't happen. And so that the physical abuse of children provides with that discharge, gets rid of that energy as it builds up and it just finally explodes. And if we look at the ways in which kids are physically abused, it's so very often there's a real sexual component to that, even having to bear buttocks. And, and the kinds of ritualistic physical abuse that often happens to children. There's really very often a, a sexual component to that as well. So sometimes these issues are not as distinct as, as, as they, they look. Now, I just want to make note that, that probably if, if the truth were known, if we knew what we hope to know someday, what we would probably find out is that 85% of offenders are male and about 15% are female. And that over the years has, has been really my clinical experience. That's just a hunch. Um, I don't think we're ever going to see a 50-50 split, but there are more female sex offenders out there than we like to think. And most of the studies say that only 3% of sex offenders are female, and I think that that is really low. Now, there is a difference in the way that male and female offenders operate, and I just want to touch on that for a moment, make note of that, because male offenders are very much more likely to do one of two things. One is that they say, do it or else. There's a lot of physical coercion and force. Or, particularly with young kids, they're more likely to try to pass off this abuse as relationship. This is what daddies who love their daughters do. This is a game best friends play. It's you and me against the world. This is how you get into the club. They trick kids into the, the abuse, and telling them that this is just part of normal relationships. Now, what happens is at about 9 to 12 years old, kids begin to get a lot of information about what is appropriate relationship. We begin to notice things. And we notice that, you know, Bill Cosby doesn't do this to his kids on the TV show. And that we don't see too many billboards using sex between adults and children to sell products. Some, but not a lot. I mean, we use relationship to sell things in this country a lot. So we begin to, to pick up the differences to make note of that, that maybe this isn't so okay. Maybe it isn't so appropriate. Female offenders, on the other hand, tend to pass off their abuse as caretaking and hygiene. This is how I clean you. I'll masturbate you till you go to sleep so you won't have nightmares. Um, this is how I toilet train you. This is The doctor told me to do this. All of those kinds of things. And children don't get as much information about what is appropriate hygiene and caretaking as we get about what is appropriate relationship. So it's much more likely to go undetected. Or if the sexual abuse by the female offender is disclosed, if it does come to somebody's attention, female offenders very often say, well, my kid's confused. You know, there's all those programs now about sexual abuse and all that stuff in the schools. And my kids conf is confused. That's just really good hygiene and caretaking. There was nothing sexual about it. When, in fact, a very kind of uh, normal behavior of hygiene and caretaking has been sexualized for the gratification of that adult. So it's, it's a lot harder, I think, to talk about abuse by female offenders. It's a lot more difficult to recognize and a lot harder to talk about. And that's something that I think really needs to change in our society is 
as we go on. Now, another thing that we know about particularly sex offenders is that this is a behavior that takes a lot of premeditation. It takes a lot of planning. There is no such thing as a spontaneous sex offense. It just doesn't happen. Physical abuse is a little different in that I think that you can spontaneously physically abuse a child. You can't lose it in the moment. However, we need to remember that a lot of physical abusers put a lot of time and energy into getting kids to keep the secret in the same way that sex abusers do. Okay, so that it's not always in the moment and in, in the, the, the heat of the moment. But lots of times there's, there's a lot of planning that goes into that. Now, one thing that we hear about offenders, sex offenders inside the family, and, and it's a very harmful myth, is that this is just an adaptation to a family system that isn't working. You know, there's people who believe that, that everybody in the family is a victim. Everybody colludes and conspires. There's positive meaning for the behavior for everyone. And that just clearly is not true. It could not be any further from the truth. And I think in recovery, people struggle with whose responsibility is, is what within the family for, for the sexual abuse. There's a few things that we know about adult offenders within families that are important to understand. One is, is that 80% of those people had the problem before they had the family. 80% had the problem before they had the family. And I, I have a colleague, Emily Coleman, who has a really terrific way of phrasing this. And she said, you know, the question is, is, is do dysfunctional families create sex offenders or do sex offenders create dysfunctional families? And I think it's very much the latter, that the person who has this problem is really going to choose a very specific type of spouse, uh, particularly when you're talking about stepfather situations. They will often pick women who have children of a certain age and will court that woman until they can be invited to live there or have, have um, limitless access to kids of that particular age. That even in that, there's a, there's a good amount of, of premeditation. Now, 50% of adult offenders of young children were juvenile sex offenders. They were out as teenagers in the community committing hands-on offense. And the additional 30% to bring us up to that 80% figure were involved in masturbation to deviant arousal patterns that resulted in orgasm. So they were fantasizing about violence, about rape, about molestation of children as teenagers in those masturbatory fantasies were resulting in ejaculation. Now, orgasm is the most powerful reinforcer around. It's like much better than M&Ms, much better. And if there was like some way that someone could figure out how to pair quitting smoking to having an orgasm, they'd make a whole lot of money because it would work. Nothing will keep a person coming back to a behavior as much as the human orgasm will, as effectively. So that it, what happens is that in that fantasy, they continue to go over this and over it and over it. The novelty wears off. And as a number of offenders have said to me, they finally, quote, build up the courage, unquote, to actually do the offense. So 80% of adult offenders, if you're talking about your uncle, your grandfather, your father, a cousin, an older person, trusted person in your family, you can bet that that person had that problem long before you came along. Okay. And even with juvenile sex offenders, even with siblings, you know, I, I work a lot with these kids on the idea that there may be many explanations for being a sex offender, but there's absolutely no excuse. And unfortunately, there are millions of little boys and girls in this country whose parents are physically abusive, who are sexually abusive, who are neglecting, who are substance abusing. And those kids grow up not to be an offender of any kind whatsoever. But a lot of people make it through these experiences without harming others. So what, what's your story? You know, where were the choice points for you? Where were the decisions that you made that were different? So I think that we need to be really careful not to try to explain away this behavior due to family dynamics. And another myth that we hear about that is that the mothers or wives of offenders, or, that, or if it, you're talking about a female offender, the father, um, that there's a non-protective parent who, who causes the abuse or who colludes and conspires. And that just simply doesn't seem to be true. Now, if sexual abuse has gone on in the family, if it's been a secret, and particularly if it started with one kid and continued, what we generally can say about that is that generally the other parent is not very nurturing and not very protective. Now, that is a generalization we can make. And that often there's a role reversal between adults and kids in families where there's either physical abuse or sexual abuse. 
I explain this to little ones as an, being an upside-down family. How in families where there's not any trouble, it's quite clearly the um, adult's responsibility to look after the emotional and physical well-being of the kids. But in families where there's trouble, sometimes that gets upside down. And it becomes the children's responsibility to look after the emotional and physical well-being of the adults. And that will often happen. So sometimes the non-offending parent is really non-protective. And that the child has the idea that my job is to take care of my mom or my dad's needs, not the other way around. Why bother them with my feelings when they've got so much trouble with their own? The last thing they need is more feelings to, to have to deal with. So that lots of times there, there's some pretty severe issues going on for the non-protective parent. And oftentimes that person can be a substance abuser as well. But that doesn't make them responsible for the offender's behavior. Okay, that makes them responsible for not being nurturing and not being protective. But lots of people are married or have partnerships with, with, with non-protective and non-nurturing people and they don't molest kids. Okay. So it's not like one necessarily follows another. But it's so easy to do mother blaming when we're talking about sexual abuse to blame the mother for what the offender did. It's interesting that when women physically abuse their kids, nobody says, how could the father allow that to happen? Yet when men sexually abuse kids, it's how could the mother allow that to happen? Up until a few years ago, I used to be really in the closet about what I did for a living. And if I went to a party or a picnic or, you know, where I was meeting new people and someone asked me what I did, I would say, that I worked with troubled kids, because that is what I do. And I wouldn't want to get into it. And a few years ago, I decided, well, you know, it just, it, this is stupid, because it's really legitimate work. I have nothing to be ashamed of, you know. It's not my fault. And that it's important, uh, that it's important for people to know that there are resources out there. So when somebody would say, what do you do? And also, I'd, I'd written some books, and then I, my work was um, featured in an article by Life magazine, and so there, there was, like, no hiding after that. I do something like that. So I finally sort of came out of the closet. And so when someone asked me what I did for a living, after they asked me what my sign was, and I'm Capricorn, if anyone cares, um, <laughs> I would say that I, uh, I run a clinic for sexually victimized children and sex offenders. And literally half of the people say to me, don't kids lie. Even in the 80s, they still say, don't kids lie. Particularly all those daycare cases. Can you really believe that? Isn't, now, keep in mind, I come from Boston, which is the land of psychoanalysis. So they would say, you know, isn't this their Oedipal complex or their Elector complex? They're just getting confused. Don't kids lie. And then the other 25% will say, how could a mother allow that to happen? And then the remaining 25% would say, how could you do that work? So that at the end, if there was something wrong with the kid, with the mother, or with me. But very rarely would anyone ever say, how could a, a, an adult do that to a child? Or pursuant to most people's stereotypes, how could a man do that to, the, to a child? It was literally one in a hundred times that anybody would ever say anything like that. And when we do prevention education, we really have a bias in this country. Because prevention education, the spots on TV or in the papers or radios or whatever say one of two things. They say, kids say no, and mothers be more careful. Now, where did we ever get this idea that sex offenders are polite? I mean, it's a crazy idea. I mean, it's helpful to give kids the information that they can say no, but that should not be the bottom line, because that's really telling them they're bad kids if the no doesn't stick. I mean, it's really putting all the burden on the child. You know, it used to be good kids obey. And now it's good kids saying no. And it's a very confusing double talk um, for kids. Most of the guys I work with, they ask nicely the first time. A lot of kids have been to these prevention programs. They say no, and they say, tough, you're going to do it anyway. Too bad. Or they say, mothers, be more careful. And we have yet to have one public service announcement that says, offenders, knock it off. This is inappropriate behavior. There's going to be consequences if you continue with this. Now, I'm not so naive to think that, that there's going to be some offender with the television on somewhere and, you know, who's in the process of molesting a child and this, this, this public service announcement is going to come on and he's going to stop or she's going to stop. I don't think that's how it will work, but it will give us a much clearer idea about whose problem this is. And it's not the kid's problem and it's not the non, 
protective parents problem either. We really need to work much more on on uh, holding the offenders accountable for the behavior. Well, what are some of the long-range impacts of, of sexual abuse and physical abuse in children? And let's get into some of those specifics, and then we'll, we'll have time for questions and discussion um, at the end. Keeping in mind that this is the overview this morning, that this is really going to be a lot of the facts, uh, what Middleton Mods and Dwinell and After the Tears, which is an excellent book, excellent book for recovering from trauma, has a lot to say for survivors of physical and sexual abuse. This is the cognitive life raft. That's the term they use. And then this afternoon, for those of you who choose to come back, uh, we'll do some experiential work around this. Also, just want to remind you that it's not going to be taped. Okay, one of the major long-term aftermaths or impact of physical or sexual abuse that's been chronic in a person's life is that they tend to, we tend to live with pervasive feelings of guilt and responsibility. And that's one of the ways in which children can learn to survive that kind of abuse. And let's look at what happens to kids while they're being beat up or while they're being molested or worse. What happens is that kids very often are, are in those situations are overwhelmed by very intense feelings. Intense feelings of, of, of hurt, of anger, of sadness, of helplessness. And particularly the randomness. If it's somebody that you know and that you trust, you know, why is this person doing this to me? Why me? If they're supposed to love me, why would they want to do such a thing? And that those feelings are are more than any child could handle, even if they were from the Waltons. I mean, even as adults, when we are physically assaulted or sexually assaulted, we do the same kinds of mind-body splits that kids talk about. We see our life flash before our eyes, or we think of the strangest kinds of things. Or I had this experience three years ago. I fell down some stairs in Harvard Square in Boston and Cambridge, and it was really a very bad fall, and I had really hurt my ankle a lot. And as I was sort of getting up, I had lost one of my shoes, and I was in a lot of pain. But what I was thinking about is I'd better get my shoe or else someone will steal it. Um, it's like, you know, what would somebody want with one shoe in Harvard Square? But it's like when you're in that much pain, when you're that traumatized, when your body, when you've lost control of your body, and that, that, that you're really overwhelmed with that affect, you know, we cannot stay with the experience. Even as adults, if we are physically or sexually assaulted, we cannot stay. Our minds and our bodies do not work together to integrate that experience in the moment. So if we can't do it with our alleged life experience and ego strength, Imagine what this is like for young kids. So kids are forced into a choice, which is no choice at all. And that is they can either stay with the feelings of helplessness and innocence and hurt and anger. And it's like being all dressed up with no place to go. Who's going to talk to this kid about this? You know, the offender certainly isn't going to be very interested. And the non-protective parent is probably really dependent on that kid, really relying on that child a lot, so he or she isn't going to be too interested. So who's going to help that kid through that? Or the child can say to themselves something along the lines of, um, I'm not innocent. I'm not helpless. I'm not hurt. This isn't random. It's not out of control. There's nothing wrong with this picture. This is happening to me for some very good reasons. It's happening to me because I deserve it. It's happening to me because I provoke it. It's happening to me because I was put here on earth to endure such things. So there's really nothing wrong with what's going on. So sometimes when we feel guilty and responsible for things that are out of our control, what we get out of that is the illusion that we're in control of what's out of control. Okay, sometimes it's more painful to sit with feeling innocent and helpless and overwhelmed than it is to say, I'm guilty, I'm responsible, and really going with that illusion that we're in control of what's really out of our control. And if a person, if we've been chronically abused, that's not something we're going to turn on and off like a light switch. We're not going to be able to say, well, I'm only going to do this when I'm being physically or sexually abused. I'm only going to learn to cope with it then. Um, What it means is that any time we feel out of control, any time situations feel hurtful or rageful, that we will have the tendency 
to adopt feelings of guilt and responsibility in order to uh, in order to tolerate that. Are people having a hard time hearing? You're okay. Yeah, that sometimes when when we are overwhelmed, that we will feel guilty and responsible as in order to have that illusion that we're in control of what is out of control. And clearly, the part of recovery is going to be to learn to sit bit by bit, little by little, with those feelings of innocence and helplessness that we felt back then. And to begin to recover those, to integrate those feelings again. And I'm going to tell you a, a Hindu story about that later. I also notice a lot of people are sneezing and hacking. I think there's like like something in the air conditioning here because I got sick when I got here as well. So... Okay, now another thing that happens for folks who are chronically abused, uh, physically or sexually, is that love is very conditional. Now, you probably most every, here, everybody here knows that in a healthy family um, or in a non-troubled family, that love is unconditional, that you can hate the sin but you love the sinner, that you can make suggestions for children in terms of how they can correct their behavior but you don't attack their worth. And what happens for, for those of us who grew up in very troubled families is that the love was very conditional. And that when we met our parents' expectations, we were loved. And when we didn't, love was withdrawn. And what was an additional problem to that is that those expectations changed daily. They were unspoken and they were unpredictable. It's easy for me to understand how some of us get into gambling. Because that's what it's like. You know, it's, it's like playing the lottery. It's putting your dollar down or megabucks or whatever you have in, in your particular state. And that if you guess right at what the expectations are for that day, you're loved. And that's a real high. That'll keep you coming back to that again and again. But if you guess wrong, then love is, is withdrawn. And that really has an important impact on our ability to trust. Because what happens is that by the time we're adults, we've really come to distrust the positive regard of other people. Our experiences is that it changes like the wind, that it's impossible sometimes to understand that someone can really not like our behavior, maybe not like it a whole lot, but still love us, still value us, not want to reject us, not want to punish us in some way. And that particularly has has implications for treatment, because one of the best ways to get somebody to leave therapy, a survivor of physical or sexual abuse to leave therapy, the best way to do that is to overwhelm them with positive, unconditional regard in the beginning. Okay, they, they will certainly leave. And it's really important to take that kind of neutral stance and, and to be comfortable with that, to ask for that as, as, as clients as well. Because what will happen is, is, first of all, this is somebody who feels guilty and responsible and evil. And it's usually just a matter of time before people find that out. And when people do find out how guilty and responsible and evil we really are, it's very disappointing. It's a really hard fall. And if we experience someone in the beginning of our relationships before we're able to trust a little bit, if we experience them as coming on strong with all of their unconditional positive regard, all of their love without knowing us, then that's that's almost like putting someone up on a pedestal. And the fall is going to be that much greater than it usually is. Also, kids who have been badly abused learn that there's no such thing as a free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. So what's this person doing? What do they want back for this? The last person who said nice things to me was the person who abused me. So what's this person's story? What strings are eventually going to be attached to that? One of the losses that comes about from physical or sexual abuse for kids is that kids lose their faith in the goodwill of other people. They lose their faith in the goodwill of other people. And there's lots of mourning to be done. And I think the whole process of grief, whether you use the Kubler-Ross model or the Bowlby model or whatever, the process of grief is, is really the process of recovery. And, and look at all the losses that need to be mourned. You know, if you were taking care of needy and controlling parents, or if you were the little wife or the little husband, the little mother or the little father in your family, then it's a loss of a childhood. And it's the loss of control over our own body. And it's the loss of our faith in the goodwill of other people. And it's the loss of our choice of first sexual partner for people who were sexually abused or whose physical abuse was really sexually charged. You know, if you weren't sexually abused, you think back to the person who you chose to have your first sexual touch with another human being. Okay, And that's really an important developmental milestone. 
You might not want to be known by that decision today, but at the time it seemed like the thing to do. Okay. And so for those of us who have been sexually abused, you know, we can later in life make that choice. And I think it's a very healing thing to put a lot of thought into who will be my first sexual contact by choice and to really be empowered to make that whatever we want it to be. But in terms of the pure sort of first choice, you know, that's gone. That is really gone. And so there's a, there's a lot of mourning that needs to be done. Now, in, along the idea of that upside-down family where we were so often little mothers or little wives or little, little husbands or little fathers, what that also brings about is something that I call developmental disorganization. And that is, is that in some ways we are going to be light years ahead of ourselves and in other ways we're going to be stuck back at the point of the trauma and there's not going to be a lot in between. And what that does for many survivors is brings up feelings of being inauthentic. Who am I? Am I the super nurturer, the super caretaker, the super survivor of adversity? Or am I this immature zero who can't keep a friend? Which is it? When actually both can be true within the same person. And another part of recovery is to really close that gap, to really help make that less pronounced. When I begin to work with someone, let's say I'm working with someone who's been physically and sexually abused, who's 12 years old, but for this person it started when they were four. Now, I'm going to know that in many ways they still need to be attended to in the therapy as if they're four. There are still lessons to be learned. You know, because these early developmental tasks that we all learn, we're guided through them. None of them are innate. It takes a bigger person taking us by the hand and guiding us through those early tasks. And if you come from a troubled family, probably our parents had not done those early tasks themselves. So they were not in any position to have helped us through. It'd be like lending money they didn't have. So that it's never too late to go back and do those. But I'm also going to know that in some ways that kid is light years ahead of him or herself. That at 12 years old, they've spent the last eight years being forced into being somebody's lover. And that that's kind of staggering when you think about it, because it takes most of us into our 20s and 30s to get that right. And again, even if you come from the Waltons, those are tasks that happen in your 20s and 30s. How do you defer your own needs to meet somebody else's? How do you deal with feelings of invasion and surrender that first sexual touch often brings up, no matter how good it is and how much by choice it is? Let's just talk about a few of the developmental tasks. There's many, but let's just talk about a few of them that get missed if you come from a very dysfunctional family. One is learning how to say no in a very straightforward way. Now, what used to be called the terrible twos and is now called the terrific twos is all about, you know, now that we're all through them, we call them the terrific twos. But that's all about learning to say no. And it's a tremendous feeling of power and competence. I mean, imagine what it's like for a little toddler to say no to somebody who's six six times bigger than he or she is and have that person respect that. Have them back off, not make them eat their spinach, let them stay up 15 minutes longer. Or more importantly, put them down, not hug them when they don't want to be hugged. It must be such a cheap thrill. I mean, it must be such an incredible feeling of power. And, and folks who grow up in, in dysfunctional families, lots of times we weren't allowed to say no. We were never taught that. And certainly we didn't hear the kinds of things that some kids hear, which is, you know, you say no better than anybody else does. You're really a good little no-sayer. We certainly didn't get rewarded for that. If, if You know, one parent's a sex offender, it's certainly not in that person's best interest that we learn to say no. And if the other parent or other adult is, is um, if there is one or the ones that are around, if they're relying on us for a lot of emotional and physical caretaking, it's not in their best interest that we would learn how to say no either. Play is another developmental endeavor that gets missed for kids who are physically and sexually abused. And play is a really important endeavor throughout our lives, but particularly in childhood, because one of many things that play will do is that play helps us to experience pleasure in our bodies without sex. Play helps us to feel pleasure in our bodies, to get to know our bodies, to like them, to feel comfortable in them without sex. It's a very non-sexual way of feeling pleasure, is to be able to play. But most of us were probably too busy taking care of people to go out and play. And certainly we weren't encouraged to have friends. 
Now, learning how to have friends, I mean, that's very, very learned. If you've ever been involved in raising kids, you know that there's nothing innate about that. Kids have to be taught, how do you pick a friend? How do you keep them? How do you share? How do you deal with conflict and jealousy? And with all the secrets that go on in dysfunctional families, it's not good to have a lot of little kids running in and out of the house all the time. So most of us just missed that whole play aspect. Now, when I've done groups for, like, teenage victims of sexual abuse, one of the things that we do is we do um, early developmental play every six to eight weeks. We call it a field trip. I obviously am not going to explain to the girls that this is what we're doing because most of the kids I work with are real street smart kids. They're delinquent. They've been around the block a few times, and, you know, they wouldn't do it. And I, a few years ago, I was when I started the last group that I did, I, I now work in male-female pairs as a co-therapist all the time. But but back then I had a, a female co-therapist who was my Ph.D. intern and was 20 years older than I am. And it was a really interesting transference because, you know, we usually get mom and dad or something like that. Well, this is grandmother and mother. So when you don't get what you want from your mother, what do you do? You go to your grandmother. It was hell. It was awful. But nonetheless, we started the group in October and the Hanukkah and Christmas season was coming up. The theory that I have about going back and doing the early developmental play, I gave Nancy, who was a wonderful person and had raised two kids to healthy adulthood, really terrific. Um, I gave her the assignment to think of some early developmental play that we could do for our first field trip. Now, in six weeks, we're going to have this holiday party, Hanukkah, Christmas party. What can we do? Obviously, we were going to decorate a tree and we were going to exchange gifts, but that wouldn't take up that much time. So she thought about it, and she came back, and she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sugar cookies. They're going to be like Stars of David and Santa Clauses and trees and things like that. And then I'm going to bring in the icing and the coloring and all the jimmies and the doodads, and the girls can paint the cookies, and that's what we'll do for like, that'll take like an hour, hour and a half. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is a little earlier than I'd had in mind. And these are all delinquent girls. I thought, if they don't shove those cookies down her throat, we'll be lucky. And I tried to kind of warn her off it. And she said, no, no, she really wanted to do it. And I thought, well, you know, we'll just call the cops if we have to. Um, so we had the Christmas party. And now what happened is the Hanukkah Christmas party. So what happened is, is the first thing the kids did is they took the icing and the food coloring and they mixed it up to look like caca and they smeared it on each other. So talk about early developmental tasks. And then they were, like, moving right along through the years. They were quick studies, smart girls, in a lot of trouble with smart girls. And so they, uh, they got down to the business of, of actually painting the cookies. Now, keep in mind, we had Twisted Sister blaring on the, the, the music box the whole time. You know, I want to kill my mother and that kind of stuff that they do. Uh, so you always have to mix a little bit of the delinquency with the early developmental play. But, you know, it was really, it was really something to sit there with these kids, um, these eight girls. And, you know, I thought to myself, yeah, isn't it amazing that no one's ever done this with them? I mean, this is here at 15, 16, 17 years old. This is their first experience like that. And I said to myself, well, no, that's just your fantasy. You can't make assumptions like that. You know, you really need So I asked them. And I was right. It was the first time anybody had ever taken a couple of hours baked cookies, sat down, and done that kind of thing. And it was the most successful field trip we ever had. Nothing was ever quite as good, quite as powerful as that first one was. And when we left, I mean, they were giving their cookies to the secretaries and giving them to people on the tea, on the subway, on the way home from in Boston. And I hope that if a disturbed uh, adolescent comes up to you with a cookie, you know, you know to take it. Just don't eat it. But... <laughs> But that you know, you know to take it. Okay. There are many, many early developmental tasks that, that can be accomplished later in life that we often, through the process of therapy um, or in other situations, can go back and learn what we needed to learn the first time around. Now, I think one thing that happens in the treatment of survivors a lot is that very often we're, we're looked at as being sick. Thank you. And pathological, and particularly labels like borderline independent personality, that kind of thing, get applied to us a lot. And I think another way of looking at that is that sometimes we have learning deficits. It's not part of our character that we don't know how to make friends. It's not part of our character that when we say no, it's in a very sideways way, that we say no by being angry or we say no by substance abusing and withdrawing or we say no by disappearing. 
uh, that we don't know how, sometimes it takes us a while to learn how to just say no and be very calm and cool and collected about that and not feel a lot of guilt, just to be able to have that boundary and respect it. Um, it's not that we're sick. A lot of times it's just a learning deficit. It's just that we haven't been taught some of those early things that we needed to know. And it's never too late to get somebody to show you how to do that, to take us through that kind of thing. Now, let me talk about counterphobic behavior and, and that in, um, in victims and survivors as well. Certainly, pain is a major feature of being sexually abused or physically abused. And there seems to be two ways that, that we deal with that pain as adults. Although they're not mutually exclusive, we can move back and forth. One is to be pain avoidant to live our lives in such a way that we will never experience pain. There's a man in Boston named Terry Hunt who does wonderful weekend workshops for adult children of dysfunctional families. And he says that being pain avoidant, living your life to avoid pain, really controlling every little detail so that you're least likely to be hurt in any way, it's like trying to drive your car just down the road looking in your rear view mirror all the time. And, you know, that wouldn't work very well. Couldn't steer very well if your eyes are in the rearview mirror, but you're trying to go forward. And then he also says that the problem with that is that it's already happened. We've already been hurt. We're trying to avoid something that has happened to us already. And that it'll never be that bad again. I mean, that's sometimes what we don't know, is that the worst is behind us. It's through. It will never be that bad again. Because certainly terrible things can happen to us as, as adults. We can be blown up by terrorists and, you know, we can be crime victims and lovers die and lovers leave us and, and awful things can happen to our kids. But what's different is that we now have power and we have judgment and we have insight and we have resources, we have people and places to turn to that we truly did not have when we were 4, 5, 6, 11, 12, 17 years old. We really didn't have it then. And we do have it now. So that, that actually what we're trying to avoid is something that has already happened. And that's sometimes a paradox in recoveries, that when the worst thing that we thought could have ever happened to us happens, we feel better. The other thing that we try to do sometimes is, is to recreate that pain in order to master it, to go back to the source of our trauma in order to master it. And that's called counterphobic behavior. And let me tell you the story that I tell folks when I see that. I do a lot of media therapy. I talk a lot about movies and TV and that kind of thing. Um, and I tell the story from the film The Deer Hunter. And I never saw this film because they killed deer, and I would never go see such a thing. But this is what I've heard happens in this film. And it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because the story works. What happens is that there are these three American soldiers in a Viet Cong prisoner of war camp. And the Viet Cong are playing Russian roulette with them. And what, the first guy that has to play Russian roulette is Robert De Niro. And so what that means is that he has to put this pistol to his head, and he has to pull the trigger. And in Russian roulette, you never know where the bullet is. That's the point. So he is a big, tough, macho guy. You know Bob De Niro. And so he's really cool and together, and he's very nonchalant about this no big deal puts the gun to his head, pulls the trigger. The bullet isn't in the first chamber, so he's okay for now. He's all right. Now, the second guy is Christopher Walken. And like De Niro, he's really calm and cool and together. And it's no big deal. And he very nonchalantly puts the gun to his head. And this is, of course, a war of wills with Viet Cong. They're not going to be bothered by this. Puts the gun to his head. He pulls the trigger. There's no bullet in the second chamber. So... He's okay for now. Now, the third guy is John Savage. Now, John Savage happens to be small in stature, but he also is responding the way most of us would respond, which is that he's crying and he's sobbing. I mean, he's decompensating. He's really losing it. He's shaking. I mean, he's, like, really out of control. And he can't get the gun to his head. In De Niro and Walken, um, they, uh, they, they go to Mon. They tease him. They go, come on, show him that they're jerks. Come on, be a man. Do it, do it. Come on, come on, come on. And so finally he gets the gun up to his head. He pulls the trigger, and there's no, no bullet in the third chamber, so he's okay for now. Now, De Niro, having won all those Oscars, is a smart guy, and he knows it's got to be in the next two chambers. 
So what he does is he grabs the gun away from John Savage, pulls the trigger twice, kills the Viet Cong, and they all run away. Now, I just want to stop at this point in the story to point out that De Niro has resolved the trauma because he blew the guy away. Okay? Now, that's not an advertisement to go out and kill your offenders. But there is something to be said for returning the feelings to their source. It really does not do us much good when we take it out on other people who had nothing to do with what was wrong. So he's resolved it because he returned his feelings right back to the source. And John Savage stayed connected to his feelings all through this. Okay, so he's not repressing, he's not stuffing anything, he's not dissociating. You know, he stayed with it. He was integrated the whole time. He knew how bad it really was, and he expressed his feelings. But the guy in the middle, Christopher Walken, didn't have either of those options. And not coincidentally, he has a wicked bad substance abuse problem. What happens is they all run away. De Niro and Savage go back to uh, Pennsylvania to kill deer, and they lose track of Christopher Walken. They don't know where he is. And Savage is in and out of the hospital, and he needs a lot of money. And, he, and, and Christopher Walken keeps on sending him cash, sends him a lot of money for these medical bills. But they don't know where he is. They don't know where he's getting all of this money. It really concerns them. So De Niro takes off and looks for him. And he finds him on the back streets of Saigon playing Russian roulette for money. And he eventually blows his brains out doing it. That's counterphobic behavior. That's returning to the source of the trauma again and again and again as if we have no feelings. Now, mastering the trauma, returning to the source of it, is in and of itself a good thing to do. And I think an important thing to do. And we can do that in therapy, and we can do it through some of the workbooks and some of the self-help groups. And there's one particular workbook, Breaking the Silence, by Catherine Tesmer, that is an excellent workbook um, for really going back to the trauma and, and reworking it. And having someone say to us the things that should have been said the first time around, it's not your fault. You're not alone. I believe you. I'm sorry. You know, to have a corrective experience, to have a safe place where we can feel what we should have been feeling back then. But it's a problem, and it becomes counterphobic behavior. It's a problem when we recreate the trauma as if we have no feelings about it whatsoever. When we recreate the, pro the trauma, stuffing our feelings the whole time. So, you know, so often we see adolescents and young adults who, who hitchhike, who, you know, it's, it's maybe the female who can find the sexually dangerous man in the room. You know, she can find the one out of the hundred or the male who can find the needy and controlling woman in the room. You know, we very often will recreate these traumas as if we have no feelings about it. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. I'm not angry. I'm not worried about being betrayed here. I'm in control. It's, again, this illusion that because I'm making this choice, because I'm moving towards this person or because I'm moving towards this situation, that I'm in control of what's out of control, okay? And it tends not to work real well. Let's talk about the process of memories, uh, remembering the details and also remembering the feelings. And this is the last little section I'm going to do, and then we're going to open it up for questions and that. Um, when someone comes into me as an adult survivor for treatment, about 80% of men and women can have a lot of repression of memory. About 80% have major loss of memory of the sexual abuse. Very unusual that someone can tell me when it began. They can usually tell me when it stopped because that was at a later developmental stage and because there was a trauma associated with it stopping. It stopped because you left home, you ran away, you got pregnant, you got married, you got adjudicated to the Department of Youth Services, you turned somebody in who got arrested. I mean, usually it stops associated with some kind of a traumatic break. Not always, but, but often. Um, but usually they can't tell me when it began. Usually people cannot remember all of the different kinds of sexual touch that took place. And what we generally work with are snapshots. We have little pieces of it here and there, and we kind of extrapolate. Now, one of the reasons for that is that one of the things that kids do in physical abuse as well as sexual abuse is they do a mind-body split. Their mind and their spirit check out. They go someplace else to keep safe. And the body stays there to endure the abuse. So the mind and the body don't work together. So that maybe they say things like, I pretended I was asleep. I pretended it was happening to somebody else, my imaginary friend, and I was just a spectator. Um, I counted wall, uh, the flowers on the wallpaper, the dots on the ceiling. I wore two pairs of pajamas to bed, all of that kind of thing. 
And even if somebody can't remember very much about how they were physically or sexually abused, I can often tell something about what's happened to them according to their medical record, according to what has happened to their body as adults. So that if somebody was, was, had, if oral sex was part of the sexual abuse, they may have chronic throat infections or chronic dental problems that don't respond to normal kinds of treatment or tightness in that area. Uh, for kids who have been severely abused or held down uh, during the sexual abuse, uh, um, both physical abuse or sexual abuse, lots of times there's weaknesses in the arms and legs, issues of mobility, circulatory problems, the, the issue of empowerment of our limbs, of our arms and our legs. With sexual abuse, there's a whole host of, of, of pelvic diseases, penile diseases, rectal diseases, whatever, that, that, that can come about as a result of this. So I think that the experience really does live on in our bodies until there's an effective intervention, an effective release of that experience. But what also comes about from that is a lot of body hatred. If it weren't for my body, I might be okay. If it weren't for my body, this wouldn't have happened to me. My body let me down. And, you know, we can leave the offender, we can leave home, we can leave town, we can leave the scene of the crime, but we can't leave our bodies. And so the body is like this constant reminder of those experiences. And it's an important part in terms of reconnecting the mind and the body. Now, when people come in and they, they've repressed a lot of memories, usually what they want to know is, did I see the movie Sybil? often the first, seriously, is the first question someone will ask me, because they're sure the fact that they can't remember means that they're sick and crazy, or that they're schizophrenic, or that they have multiple personalities, and they just want to make sure that I know what I'm doing here, that I've seen Sally Fields do this. Uh, and what I tell people is that the repression of memory is really a very healthy defense. It's a, really an excellent one, and that for as long as we're repressing memory, we need to honor that. We need to respect that that's okay. I'm not one for forcing the recovery of, of memory. I'm really not. That, it's, you know, if you think about it when you're a little kid, what else could you have done? It was really a pretty smart idea under the circumstances. What were you going to do? Go take notes on it? You know, go write it down so you could look it up later? Forgetting was the best that you could do. Now, what happens often is that those defenses outlive their usefulness. They become obsolete. They become more trouble than they're worth. It would be like I have this colleague, Janet Yassen, who's got this wonderful saying. She says, now, what would you do if I told you don't think about the word elephant? Whatever you do, do not think about the word elephant. What would you do? You think about it or you think about how you weren't supposed to be thinking about it. And there'd be nothing left over. All of your energy would be going into one of those two things. And there'd be nothing left over for play for fun, for relationships, for work. It would all be going into repressing that. It, it's like sitting on an overstuffed suitcase. You go on vacation. I, how many of us actually go on vacation? But theoretically, <laughs> theoretically, if you were to go on vacation and you packed your suitcase too tight and you sit on it trying to get it closed, you know, you can exhaust yourself in no time at all trying to keep closed an overstuffed suitcase. I work in uh, detention centers now. I do groups for juvenile offenders. And when we were doing the community meeting about the group was going to start, one of the kids said, you know, all these things are in our past. Why do you have to bring them up? Why don't we just forget them and get on with our lives? And I use Janet's little analogy a lot. And I said, well, you know, it would be like, if I, what would you do if I said to you, don't think about the word elephant? And this kid thinks for a moment. He was like probably 17. He says, Hey, lady, if you told me not to think about the word elephant, I wouldn't think about the word elephant. Whatever you say, I'll do. So I have to, like, think of a new one to do in detention centers because I've never gotten that response before. And all the times I've told that story. So really different kind of population. Um, so the, the whole repression of memory is one that we have to really honor and respect. And to understand that these memories, that the thoughts and feelings will come back when it's safe for them to come back, and not one minute earlier. Flashbacks, the recovery of memories, has a sense of timing all its own. Now, when people begin to remember, I will often ask them, what is positive in their life? What is safe in their life that is allowing them to remember today? Why not six months ago? Why not two years ago? Why not five years ago? And people usually refer to some kind of a trigger. They say, well, you know, I read this article on sexual abuse, or I saw a kid who looked like me, or there was a rape in a movie, and that's how come I remembered. 
Well, you know, there's been rapes in movies since the very first movie that was ever made, The Birth of a Nation, which was also a horrendously racist movie as well. And there's always been kids who look like us. And there's been articles on sexual abuse for a very long time. So that might seem like why, but that's really not it. And this isn't to take away from how painful and disorienting flashbacks, memories can be. But we also need to give equal time to what is telling us that it's safe now. Lots of times it's the, rela- it's the therapy. It's counseling. It's self-help groups. Sometimes it's friends. It may be a partner. Uh, lots of times it's things like moving to a safer neighborhood or getting a promotion, having more money. Issues of empowerment, which will tell us that it's time now to do this work. But I really would caution people not to push it and to really respect that this is an excellent defense and that you're going to have it for as long as you need it. And at the point at which it outlives its usefulness, it will begin to give away some. Now, I talk about this as being like chirogenics in science fiction. You know how in chirogenics you can actually, um, and they they did this to some poor beagle. If you have this uh, disease, they can freeze you. And then when there's a cure, they thaw you out and they give you the cure and you go on with your life. And it may be two or three hundred years later, but that's okay. Well, this is, this is like, this is like chirogenics because certainly your thoughts and your feelings about the physical abuse or the sexual abuse don't go away. They don't disappear. The memory and the feelings don't go away. They just go into deep freeze and they stay there until it's safe for them to come out. And that when we have memories, the feelings we have about the memories are the feelings that we had at the point of the trauma. And that's an important distinction to understand. I don't think sometimes it gets talked about enough. I'll I'll give you an example, too. The feelings you have about your memories are really the feelings you had at the point of the trauma. That's what's getting unfrozen. That's what's thawing out. Let me give you an example. Um, When I used to have a private practice, I used to see this one woman on Tuesdays. And she would... One evening when she left, um, she had a flashback. She recovered the memory of having been penetrated. Now, that was not something she previously had any awareness of at all, none whatsoever. And she didn't call me. She didn't tell her friends. She didn't tell her partner. And over the week, she had a lot of feelings about that experience. I mean, as you can imagine, she felt actual physical pain, which often happens. And she felt a lot of anger and a lot of, of, of repulsion and, and a lot of sadness and hurt. But her primary feeling over the week was one of a lot of self-blame. And what she said to herself again and again and again, really mentally beat herself up about, you know, I have a lot of people who I could talk to about this. I could call Lynn. I could talk to my friends. I could talk to my partner. And I, I'm not doing that. And that means that I'm really sick. And I'm weak. And I deserve to feel as bad as I feel. And, I mean, if only I would reach out, a lot of this would go away. And so I really deserve what I'm getting here. So it's just another variation of feeling guilty and responsible so we can be in control of what's out of our control. The following Tuesday, she comes in. She tells me about what the flashback that she had had. And as we talked about that, and what we discovered was that when she was a little girl in a rural area 25 years ago, What she believed is that if only she would tell somebody, her priest, a teacher, somebody, about what was going on in her family, that then it would all stop. And the fact that she never did that meant that she deserved it and that it was really all her fault. And now this was a family that had, both parents were alcoholic to the point of being totally debilitated, couldn't work. They had a lot of kids. They were impoverished. Tremendous amounts of physical abuse as well as sexual abuse. I mean, if they ever made a movie about this family, Sean Penn would be in it. Um, and really clearly, I, you know, I don't think that, that 25, 30 years ago in this rural area that it would have been such a hot idea to have told I mean, if anything, I think it would have made things a lot worse for her. I think this was a family that would have been capable of killing her for having told. I mean, that that was a realistic thing. But that what matters is that we went back and was able, were able to really understand those feelings. Really, she was able to make friends with those feelings and understand where they came from and to really understand how that was not realistic and to get underneath that to some of the innocence and the helplessness that she did feel. Let me just close with the story that I, I, was, I said I was going to tell you, the Hindu story. Um, this is about Vishnu. And Vishnu is the king of all the Hindu gods. And Vishnu and these other gods, they live together in this castle. 
And one day, Vishnu has to go away on a business trip. And what happens is that this very ugly, gross, little, really terrible little monster comes to the door of the castle. And one of the gods lets this monster in. Well, this, this monster is just so awful looking. Usually at that point some kid says, that's my little brother. Um, this, kid, this monster is so awful looking that the gods become afraid of it. And then they notice that this is one of these monsters who eats your fear. So he eats the fear, and it eats the fear, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, he, and it's getting so big that the, the gods are really getting annoyed. They're mad. They're angry. They're trying to push this monster out the door. They are fed up with it, and it's a big imposition, and they're really furious. And then they notice that this is one of those monsters who eats your anger. And so he gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he's so big that they're getting afraid of it again. So then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It eats their fear until finally the monster takes up every single space in this castle except for this one corner where all the gods are huddled together. Well, Vishnu comes home And he knows what to do. He understands the situation. He gets it. And what he does is he goes over and he shakes hands with the monster. And he offers it a drink, non-alcoholic, of course. And he makes it dinner. And he sits down with the monster and he talks with it. He gets to know the monster. He makes friends with the monster. And as Vishnu does this, he notices that the monster gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it never completely disappears. But the monster is smaller than Vishnu is, and it stays that way. That's not a story about making friends with offenders, because that may not be appropriate. It is a story about making friends with our feelings about having been abused. And lots of times when we repress and depress our whole lives, when we begin to feel a little bit, it feels like a tidal wave compared to what we're used to. And that's when that old therapy cliche is true about sometimes when you think you're going crazy, you're really going sane. And we sometimes believe that if we ever started to cry, we'd cry a river. Or that if we ever got angry, we'd blow up a city. And it's a story about making friends with our feelings about having been abused. That abuse is something that happens to us. It's not who we are. And that our feelings about what has happened are really normal reactions to an abnormal situation and something that we need to to befriend. 